Um, Lord, it's been a crazy day already. Um, I just want to come before you now and want to ask that you calm us all and give us peace and ask that you uh, help me exposit your word and help me write and handle it, Lord. Um, I want to ask that you uh, bring its truths out and let it pierce our hearts and change us, Lord God, and let us not be uh, just hearers but doers as well, Lord God. Um, I want to ask that you uh, bless this wonderful time of worship, Lord. I ask that you uh, bless your church around the world as they worship today, Lord, even those in uh, places where they don't have uh, the freedom to come to a church building and uh, they have to do it in secret, Lord. I ask that you bless them. And I ask that you uh, be with them at this time, Lord. In your name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, we're in Luke 23 and 24 today, um, kind of wrapping up the book of Luke. And uh, Luke has been essentially telling us throughout this entire, not the entire book, he's kind of going through and uh, telling us about the story of salvation from uh, what God has done to bring Jesus to give us salvation. At the same time, uh, he's got a strong concern for people that are, you know, wouldn't be as credible back in the day. So, for example, um, we're going to read here uh, at Jesus' tomb when Mary Magdalene, uh, no, I can't even say that today, when Mary Magdalene runs there and it's like, guys, Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. The disciples are mm, you're crazy. You know, you, you need to chill. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's bringing that forward because back in rabbinical tradition, you know, the testimony of children or women or those who are infirm uh, is something that would have been, eh, well, okay, we'll, we'll have somebody else who's more reputable tell a story. And so somebody like that telling the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, using those as witnesses, kind of illustrates what Paul says, like, you know, the foolishness of the gospel, like, you know, to Greeks and to Romans and to even, you know, Jews themselves that have been like, that's, why would I believe that, you know? So it kind of, it's, it illustrates that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Um, but let's continue. Um, this is a good, I think 23 and 24, it's, it tells the story of, you know, we've, in 22, We've come from the part of Jesus in uh, before the council, his, uh, his, his uh, suffering in the garden, praying. And now here, we're here, Jesus before Pilate. And I think this is a good time to talk about this, because, you know, our culture right now, it's Christmas time, you know, we're talking, you know, we're singing Christmas songs, and there's songs on the radio about, you know, a baby in a manger, and, you know, we're, we're focusing on the incarnation. But at the same time, as we do this, we're also talking about, you know, the main purpose for the incarnation. Uh, the main purpose for Jesus to come, to die on the cross for our sins and rise again, to you know, fulfill everything that, you know, the entire, this much of this book. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <coughs> excuse me. Getting into verse 1 on ver- uh, chapter 23, uh, just giving some background. The Pharisees brought Jesus before Pilate um, after one, falsely accusing him in the Sanhedrin, um, striking him, mocking him, um, you know, saying, you know, the soldiers right there when they say in, uh, in chapter 22, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Um, after they've physically abused Christ, and well, now you know, we can't, we can't kill him for blasphemy because you know we're subject to the Romans, so we're going to take him before Pilate. Um, so now here, though, instead of accusing him of blasphemy, 
to Pilate they're saying, oh, he's a, he's a political revolutionary. He told us not to pay taxes to Caesar, which is a lie because he says, you know, if you recall, Jesus says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, but then they also say, oh, well, uh, he's saying that he's, uh, he's the king of the Jews and he's going to overthrow the Romans, right? Which is, a, you know, if you say you're a king, but you, know, you have Caesar in Rome who rules over you, that's a direct revolutionary challenge to whoever's ruling over you. But this is, uh, this, this is kind of interesting, though, because each and every single one of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they didn't like the Romans as well. They, if there was another guy that had been quick to say, yeah, um, I don't like the Romans either, but let's get an army together and uh, we're going to overthrow the Romans, which is what they were looking for for the Messiah, they would have been okay with it. But here, um, because Jesus is, well, I'm God. I mean, I've come to forgive people of sins. I've come to do everything. You know, he even you know, he tells them, you've done, do not take, you've added to the law. You've said, do not touch, do not taste. You've made commandments of men over what I've given you. So they're not happy with him at all. So they're like, all right, we're going to kill you. And uh, I think it's pretty interesting, though, like, if you look at the if you look at the scriptures, Jesus didn't really come as you know. In, in some sense, he didn't really come as a political figure. Um, I was having lunch with uh, Pastor Rick the other day as I prepared this, and uh, I was reading. Uh, you know, if you read on the internet a lot, you'll see people like, oh, well, Jesus was a Palestinian anarchist who, you know, wanted free health care for everybody. Or you also have that, you know, you have the, on the equal and opposite side, Jesus was a lower your taxes, gun loving Republican too. But it's really interesting, though, because I was reading, as I was saying, I was reading a, a commentary by a PCUSA pastor, and his main takeaway from this passage was Jesus was the perfect political man who rose in spirit to give us, uh, to give us the power to overcome and be liberated, which I don't know about that. But the, both of those claims, though, um, ironically, they're the, they're the Pharisees and the Sadducees' claims, which, I mean... If you're a believer, I don't know why you would agree with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but you're essentially saying that Jesus is, uh, you're, you're agreeing with the false accusation of the Pharisees and Sadducees against Christ. Um, and I think it's interesting because if you look at John 6.15, his followers and disciples, you know, they try to make him a, they try to make him a king. They try to physically crown him a king. But the scripture tells us that Jesus drew away from him and went to a mountain and, you know, hid from them to prevent them from making him a, a physical, temporal king. Uh, why would he, if Jesus is, you know, literally already the king of the universe, the king of the world, why would Jesus not say, you know, be like, oh yeah, I'm definitely a king, crown me? Well, I think he, he wants to communicate he's a different kind of king. He's not just a a king here on this earth, but his rule is over all things. Anybody else have any opinions? In a sense, he's going to receive his kingdom as a reward for his obedience to the Father. Mm -hmm. He has to go through all of that first. He can't just jump ahead. Exactly. And uh, it's kind of interesting, though, too. If uh, Psalm 2, right? Um, when Pilate, you know, when, first off, when Pilate sends, uh, I'm getting, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but Pilate says, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, like, it's as you say. And then, you know, he sends him to Herod. And Herod, you know, 
kind of wants to see a sign. You know, not really just because you know, he believes that he's you know, the king of the universe or God in human flesh. He's, uh, he wants to be entertained. It's, uh, so you see Pilate, who's this big, strong... You know, for example, if you, if you, he's a Roman prefect. He's a governor of Judea. This dude is, like, juiced up. He can bring 3,000 Roman auxiliaries, the best troops in the entire world at the time. He commands them. He can do whatever he wants. And Herod, the Tetrarch, is essentially a king as well, who has his own political power. And both of them kind of fulfill Psalm 2 by, you know, being worldly kings and kind of rebelling against, you know, again, rebelling against the sun, even though God has appointed him as king over all nations. Um, but I also kind of think it's weird that uh, Pilate, even as this, you know, big, powerful Roman governor, at the same time, um, is kind of, see, he kind of seeks to wash his hands of the entire thing. He's like, um... I'm just going to send him to Herod. He's, he's Herod's problem, because he's from Herod's district, essentially. So it kind of, kind, of passes, kind of passes the buck, if you will. And if, historically, um, I mean, even though Pilate was this you know, militarily and politically strong guy, even socially, um, being a Roman governor of a province was like you were like second in status and power to a, Senate, a Roman senator. So... I don't know though. Like, if you read the history, Pilate had gotten in trouble a bunch of times with uh, with Rome for being antagonistic towards the Jews. Um, at one point, he had sought to uh, plant the eagle standard of the Roman army on the Temple Mount, and that caused near riots. And of course, um, his bosses up in Rome were like, "What are you doing, dude? Like, do you, what's going on here?" And then at another time, he would put his idols near the temple, the Roman gods. And the Jews would near riot there too, so he was openly antagonistic and had been <coughs> essentially, you know, you know Rome had come down and said, hey, "What are you doing, dude? Like, are you trying to cause trouble? Are you trying to make this hard for us?" So I think that's kind of interesting here in that he's, after all of that, even though he's, you know, antagonistic towards you know, Jewish customs and Jewish so- uh, Jewish social structure, he's still. Even though he's powerful, he just passes everything off. He's like, well, I don't want to get in trouble. There you go. He's yours, Aaron. Um, so when Pilate pronounces that he has nothing to condemn, you know, why would I condemn Jesus to death? What, he's done nothing wrong. So he passes him off to Herod. Um, Herod, again, like I said, is really only the same Herod that killed John the Baptist is only there to essentially see a sign from Jesus. He's done, he doesn't really believe. He's, uh, he wants to be entertained by Christ. And it's interesting because even if you look at all, you know, most of the miracles throughout Scripture, throughout Luke, um, the beggar who barely touches his robe, it's like, if I can only touch his robe and, you know, not be seen, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be fine. I'll be healed. And Jesus stops everything to talk to that person, to, to heal them, to, you know, your faith has made you well. But for Herod, he does nothing. He stays silent. Absolutely silent. And by doing so, even though, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes are there accusing him of, you know, being a revolutionary, of, you know, being a blasphemer, they're, they're vehemently, it says the scriptures are here, they're vehemently accusing him. They're, uh, they're, eager to shed innocent blood, something that Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says God hates. Um, he's, he's silent. And then that kind of reveals to, you know, that kind of reveals Herod's true heart, right? 
he wasn't there to worship him. He wasn't there. You know, he didn't really believe that he was, you know, God incarnate. So he mocks him. He's like, ah, oh. <laughs> right, okay. You know, just he's uh, sorry. Um, yeah, he has no regard for the doctrine of you know the whole entire Old Testament saying that the Messiah is coming. Um, he doesn't care. He doesn't love Jesus. Um, so it's also kind of weird, though, even with Jesus Christ, um, the second person of the Trinity, true God and true man, standing before him, it's kind of frightening that Herod is so blind as to, you know, to you know, be like, ha, okay, yeah, I totally believe you. And what I mean, what does that say? I mean, that somebody could be so deluded. I mean, it kind of frightens me that, you know, anybody can be that blind spiritually. I mean, what does it say? I mean, it's, it's kind of like Romans 1, too. You know, things are... Uh, those who love their sin and death, you know, they, they're they so blinded to it that they're, they hate God and they elevate everything else but God to it, uh, to worship. And, uh, you know, I think it's Paul that says that, you know, they elevate things, you know, those that are not gods to gods and they worship them. So. Um, after this, though, after... Herod mocks him. Um, he's, Herod sends him back to sends him back to Pilate, and the text says that after that, Pilate and Herod became friends, even though they hated each other before this. So in their in this entire situation where you know where uh, the Sanhedrin is trying to kill Jesus and Pilate's trying to you know pass the buck on to Herod, they become friends. Herod and you know Pilate really doesn't you know he says if you read the other gospels Pilate asks Jesus you know what is truth right so he doesn't believe and Herod doesn't believe and they're united in unbelief against Christ and it's interesting that they become friends over this like what well, I don't know what what would you think would be causing causing to become friends over the eventual you know false accusation and killing of Jesus Christ. It says, verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Um, it almost seems that they now have this common you know, enemy in a sense that even though it says earlier that Herod was glad to see Jesus because he had been wanting to, mm-hmm. it's like he didn't do, didn't perform the way he wanted him to. Mm-hmm. So now he was either embarrassed or whatever, so he was on the side of accusing him and attacking him. Yeah. Definitely. And again, it's like Psalm 2, uh, 1 and 2, they, you know, they refuse to kiss the sun. Uh, they refuse to worship him, and so they're united in essentially, um, they may not have known it at the time, but their hatred of God. Um, so after they, you know, after he's Jesus Christ is sent back before Pilate, um, Pilate again seeks to, you know, why am I, why am I still dealing with this? Uh, so he's, so an attempt to uh, kind of compromise and, you know, get this entire situation dealt with. He says, I'm going to, it says here, uh, sometimes you'll see it rendered as punish, um, but really what it means is uh, he's going to scourge him. Um, 
which uh, scourging is essentially a, a scourge is a tool that has bits of bone in it, pieces of metal. It's a leather. It's kind of like a whip, but it's not like um, it's not like a bull whip, and it's not like you know some you know <coughs> cord made of rope. It's a it's a pretty vicious looking thing. Um, and what happens is, is that when you whip with it, there are pieces in it that they stick to your skin, or they're like you know, sharp barbs, and they kind of rip down your back, and they kind of uh, end up looking like raw meat at the end of it. So, in an attempt to compromise, you know, well, I know you want him dead, but uh, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll severely injure him, so you know, you can uh, you can go on about your way. But that's not really, you know, that's not really good enough because. Uh, it's not really good enough, and they demand that the Jews demand that, that Pilate crucify him. They say, "No, crucify him." So, um, sorry, kind of lost my place here. Oh yeah. So after after you know Pilate scourges Jesus, um, and the crowd still demands that Jesus be crucified. Um, there's a custom on the Passover where uh, I think it's oh, is it the Passover. Yeah, Passover, where the Romans would release a criminal as a show of good faith or a show of, you know, yeah, we're good people, right? We're, we're nice conquerors. Um, so Pilate seeks to use this to kind of also as like another kind of outlet to avoid to avoid killing Jesus. It's like, all right, how about this? Oh, you know, I can either release to you Barabbas or I can release Jesus to you. And the crowd demands, you know, release to us Barabbas, which makes zero sense, right? Why would you release a guy who says the scripture says he was literally uh, he was a terrorist? He was the same thing. He was insurrection. He was the same thing that the Jewish leaders had accused Jesus of being. <laughs> so, but keep in mind that throughout this entire process, uh, prophecy is being fulfilled numerous times. Um, we're going to see it here later on too, Jesus' crucifixion. But I also kind of think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel how uh, we ourselves are insurrectionists against the sovereign kingdom of God where we refuse to bow our knee to him and worship him. Um, you know, before, before God you know, opened our hearts and our minds to believe, you know, gave us you know, hearts of flesh, we were outwardly lovers of self, lovers of darkness, and we were, you know, we're um, in the Psalms, uh, I distinctly remember a psalm that says, you know, who is Lord over us? Our lips are our own. Right? Um, and I think it's a beautiful picture of Barabbas is us. Right? And Jesus Christ is the innocent one who is, you know, uh, he, was, he was hurt for you. Know, he was uh, beat for our transgressions and he's taken you know, He takes his sins on himself. takes our sins on himself. So I think that's a good, you know, kind of a big, nice small portion of the gospel right there too um, so here after all this you know uh, Jesus is given his cross um, he's condemned to be crucified um, in, you know, crucifixion is also really uh, back in the day it was for you know kind of an ignoble death it was for slaves thieves um, again revolutionaries that kind of thing um, so as they're leading Christ the way to be crucified, you hear, you see women um, mourning and lamenting for him. Back in the day, it was also kind of cool because, well, not cool, but interesting, in that there are women who are professional mourners who would be paid, essentially, to weep and wail after those who are being crucified. Um, but Jesus' words say, you know, he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. 
indicating that they're native to Jerusalem. They're not, you know, they're not foreigners. They're not people who've been, you know, there for a job or paid to do it. And he says to them, uh, and he says to them, uh, you know, daughters of Jerusalem, sorry, um, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it was dry? Um, a lot of people, a lot of commentaries I read think that Jesus is here talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Um, but it's also kind of interesting, though, in that uh, he's at, Jesus kind of echoes the words of Hosea 10.8 and Isaiah 2.19 here, where God's wrath is, you know, God's wrath is unleashed, and people are begging to be crushed by mountains to avoid it. Um, I mean, what is it? Why do you think Jesus would say something like this at this time? So Jesus is innocent, right? Um, he's crucified. Do you think that maybe um, what would happen to you know, people like Caiaphas who demanded Jesus be crucified, right? What do you think would happen to the population of Jerusalem that unjustly demanded his death? And God helped them. But I have a question for you and for all of us. What are the enemies? <coughs> um, so here we are. Um, I've kind of skipped over a lot now. But in verse 34, um, Jesus says, you know, while he's being crucified, um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So, this is kind of interesting. Because, oh man, the ignorance of, you know, Jewish and Gentile people who, you know, it says, you know, doesn't excuse them, you know, because it doesn't excuse their sin against Christ, condemning an innocent man and seeking the shedding of innocent blood. Um, but it's interesting because the door to repentance is still there. They can still repent and believe. They can still believe the gospel and be, you know, be spared the consequences of seeking after innocent blood. Um, and it's also cool because you see prophecy fulfilled here, specifically uh, Psalm 22:18, because it says, you know, they cast my, you know, they cast lots to the, you know, for my garments, and you can see Roman soldiers, you know, literally gambling over the clothes of Jesus. Um, what normally would happen is, you know, whoever crucified, you know, whoever crucified somebody, like, they all, I don't know, they just divide up the stuff. They're like, all right, you take that and you take that. The end. Well, here they gamble for it, which is unusual. Um, <coughs> and the people stood watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, "He saved others; let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, his Messiah." Again, that uh, that also echoes. Uh, Psalm 22, um, those who torment the Messiah say, you know, you know, God will rescue you if you're actually God's chosen one. It's still, it's still the expression of their doubt and their mocking and like, yeah, you're totally, you're totally the Messiah, right? But you can't save yourself. You know, God favors you so much that he's going to let you die on the cross. Um, 
But it's interesting, though, that the thieves even mock him. Those two crucified thieves next to him are mocking him until one of them recognizes that Jesus is innocent and is who he says he is. And he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He says, you know, uh, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it's interesting that phrase, though, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It indicates a present trust that Jesus isn't about to be, you know, die and be annihilated, you know, until some future resurrection. Um, Christ indicates to them that after death, he is going to be there with him in a heavenly kingdom. Um, verse 45, it says, now, oh, sorry, starting at verse 44, it says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. And again, um, the sun's light failed. Yeah, it's a supernatural darkness, right? And it's cited by Peter on the day of Pentecost. But at that same time, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, I kind of think that is, uh, I kind of think that's a, maybe a sign, or a, you know, kind of a sign that the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament sacrificial system of animals, um, you got to come to the temple on a specific day, bring a specific sin offering, um, go through all these steps, and then God will forgive your sins. I think it's kind of a, you know, it's a signification that the Old Testament system of sacrifices, you know, purity laws and things like that, those are, those are done now. We have direct access to Christ, uh, <coughs> we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Um, in verse 49, it doesn't, you know, you see uh, some disciples that are standing afar off. Uh, his acquaintances and his women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Um, Luke doesn't say what, you know, what kind of, what the emotions of the people that are, you know, his disciples and his friends standing afar off watching these happen. He doesn't really, he doesn't really give us an indication of what they were feeling, what they were thinking. Um, but I think it's interesting, though, after all these things happen, Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Um, Joseph of Arimathea is a rich guy, a socially well-connected guy, and he risks everything that he has, his social status, his reputation. Um, yeah, he asks for the body of Jesus to prepare. And it says that here that he wasn't with uh, he wasn't with all of the uh, the Sanhedrin there who consented to their decision and action to crucify Jesus Christ. And it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And that seems kind of like a colloquial phrase to me, maybe. Um, maybe he was still wrestling with, you know, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus who he says he is? Um, but here, he, asks, he risks all of that and asks, Jesus, or asks, for, asks Pilate for Jesus' body. <clears throat> why would why do you think that somebody who's maybe you know, it says still seeking for the kingdom of God, why do you think that somebody that connected that well off would risk their personal reputation to bury somebody to who the rest of the Sanhedrin were was a was a troublemaker, was somebody you know ruining everything? It appears he had faith in Christ. So it appears that he believed. Um, now here's something. Uh, if you look at verse 54, right? Uh, it says it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. 
The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices on ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Um, so they're all on their way to prepare Jesus to be buried. Um, they've got all, you know, they're looking to see the layout of the tomb because it's, you know, the Sabbath is coming, so they can't do any work here soon. So they're getting everything ready so after the Sabbath they can come and prepare Jesus' body to be buried. Um, then they go and prepare uh, traditional, you know, embalming things, uh, myrrh, aloe, that kind of stuff, spices. Um, but it's kind of interesting though in that you know, myrrh and you know, myrrh, all these spices, they were expensive things. They weren't, you know, you can't go down to, they didn't have, you know, oldies down the street where you can go and buy a, buy a thing of cinnamon for like two dollars, you know. Um, it was expensive. And it was, you know, they, it was a sign of love that they were going to lovingly prepare his body instead of just kind of letting it lay there. Um, like what would usually happen with people who were crucified. The bodies of people who were crucified were just kind of unceremoniously just taken off the cross and just tossed into a ditch somewhere and that's it, right? Um, but if you remember Jesus' words, you know, he tells, uh, in John 2, 19 through 21, he says, you know, he tells, he tells the Pharisees and the scribes, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Um, and the temple he referred to was his body. If, I mean, maybe, I don't know, I don't think they kind of quite got it yet that, you know, He's gonna rot. You know, he's, he's gonna defeat sin and death. Um, and you know, even in their sorrow, though, even in their, you know, their all right. Well, the guy we thought was the Messiah, the guy we thought was our, you know, our Savior, he's dead now. So I mean, all right. <laughs> uh, but even in their sorrow, though, they're still gonna observe the commands of God. They're still gonna observe the Sabbath. Um, I think that's also kind of a striking picture for us. Like, what does that say to us? Like, even in our dark times, or even in our, you know, our uncertainty, you know, we, we obey the commands of God and we wait patiently on the Lord. <coughs> so, now getting into the resurrection, the end of, you know, kind of in the ending chapter of Luke here now. Um, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared before the Sabbath. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And, on, and they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, for turning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Um, those beings there that the, that the women encounter, um, obviously angels, right? And they remind Jesus of, or they remind, Jesus, they remind the women of Jesus' words. Um, and this is the sovereign plan of God from the beginning. They tell, they tell the women that, hey, don't you remember? This is, this was. Set what was going to happen from the beginning. Don't you remember? Come on, guys. Um, <laughs> in verse 8, uh, Mary is the first person to see the resurrected Christ. Um, yeah, it was with Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, uh, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. Um, she tells the apostles, and everybody is skeptical. Um, you know, again, it's like I said. Uh, the testimony of women and people who are infirm and things like that really didn't count for much. So the disciples are kind of skeptical, like, oh, we don't believe you, you need to relax. 
Peter himself goes and checks the, uh, checks the, uh, checks the tomb. And he sees the grave clothes that Scripture says, you know, by themselves. Um, which, you know, if somebody had come and taken the body and struggled with the soldiers and everything like that, there would be grave clothes torn up and be a mess and that kind of thing. But it says that they're just kind of sitting there by themselves. And it's interesting because this, the testimony of Peter refutes the, uh, refutes the Pharisees' claim later in Acts that, oh, well, they just stole the body, right? Um, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Uh, it's just, a, it's a trick. But um, Peter's kind of wonder. It says he's uh, Peter is. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen by them, uh, linen cloths by themselves, and went home marveling at what had happened. It's not the marveling. I don't know that the marveling is like, oh, well, it's a miracle that's happened. I think it's maybe confusion, maybe like, what's going on here? Like, mm, that's odd. Um, and then we encounter the road to Emmaus. Uh, Emmaus. Um, so two of them, that says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. I think you, you can imagine, like, all right, so the guy we thought the Messiah was crucified and died, and now his body is gone. Like, what is going on here? You know, I can imagine the conversation that's going on. Like, what are we going to do now? Like, I don't know. Like, everything's topsy-turvy, right? It's crazy. It's a crazy world going on. <laughs> um... But as they're on this road, um, you know, they're confronted, uh, it says one of them named, Cle- uh, sorry, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So these guys who had spent you know, pretty much every waking hour with Jesus um, didn't recognize him. Um, and it says that uh, their eyes were kept from seeing, and that kind of indicates maybe, you know, God kept them from seeing, recognizing Jesus, right? So, and it says throughout this entire walk, um, you know, he, uh, is he, hold on, I'm trying to find the verse. Um, he expounded to them, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to read the entire thing. Uh, and he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. So, it appears that, you know, to, to the disciple, that some stranger is there telling, you know, telling them all about the prophets in the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus Christ, and how the Old Testament tells them, Jesus is going to be crucified for us, and he's going to rise on the third day. So what do you, what do you mean? What are you, guys, what are you guys puzzled about? Right? Um, as he's doing this, it says they're continuing closer and closer towards the village. So they're on a walk. Um, 
he it says uh, in scripture, he acted as if he were going going farther, but the disciples urged him strongly, saying, "Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent." So Jesus stayed with them. Uh, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So it's kind of interesting. I think you know he took the bread and broke it. Kind of pictures what he did at uh, uh, the Last Supper, where he breaks the bread and says, "This is my body." Um, <clears throat> And it says that their eyes were open, and it's my divine action that they're now like, oh man, this is Jesus. Like, oh, what's going on here? Kind of like a, I think that also kind of pictures um, maybe, you know, we're blind in sin, and then through regeneration, you know, our eyes are open, and our hearts are made flesh, and we're like, oh man, Jesus is who he says he is. Man, we've done all this wrong. Um, so, my question is, why, why do you think God would keep the, you know, keep the people, you know, keep the disciples walking toward, towards Emmaus, why he would, uh, why he would veil Jesus Christ to them, why he wouldn't he be like, hey guys, it's me, what's up, you know, like, I don't, personally, myself, I would be like, yo, I'm risen, hey guys, you know, why do you think God would kind of veil that to them? I imagine it would be kind of difficult to attend to what he was teaching them from the Old <laughs> Testament, if if they realize. <laughs> well, and I think it's also sort of like the proof, too, of, you know, that it could be kind of a, definitely confusion and potentially excitement, but potentially just not believing that that's what happened. And so he spent the time giving the background of saying, hey, you should be expecting this, and then revealing himself. Yeah. So kind of like a kind of like a lead up, like you know somebody tells you the story, and then hey, by the way, surprise! Here's the you know, kind of like a surprise thing, you know, like hey guys, here's the story to the whole thing. And, oh, by the way, just kidding, here it is, like kind of that whole thing. <coughs> um, it says, and as they were talking about these things, you know, um, well, this is after. Um, it says uh, after this, after their eyes were open and they recognized him, he vanished from their sight, just kind of like gone that um, and, and then they're still kind of marveling at each other and they're saying you know didn't didn't our hearts burn with this within us as we walked on the road and he opened to us the scriptures so they're kind of like yeah wait a minute how did we realize this before this is Jesus like remember how we felt when Jesus would open the scriptures beforehand and tell us what was going on so they so, so they rose and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven that were with them gathered together saying the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon and then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in breaking of the bread. Um, and they're in, the, and they're in the midst of talking about all of this. Like, guys, yeah, like, you know, I can imagine, you know, the appearance. Like, some guys are like, man, you guys are crazy, too. Like, y'all, you know, what's going on here? Y'all need to chill out. And then Jesus appears. Um, the doors are locked, too. It says that the doors are locked and they're startled and frightened. They think that they see a ghost. They're like, wait a minute. The doors are locked and there's this person here and they're, they're terrified. They think they're seeing a spirit. Um, and that's uh, I think that's interesting though because uh, despite the testimony of Simon and those from uh, who had walked along the road to Emmaus, um, there's still doubt, there's still confusion, there's still uh, there's still a tenor of you know what's going on here, what, you know, what is going on in our world, um, and, this, and I think uh, Jesus's appearance kind of. Uh, kind of provides proof that he's risen physically like he's like hey guys um, he says here uh, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see 
And he provides proof that he's physically risen. He's not, you know, a spirit or an apparition. He's not, you know, a figment of their imagination. That he's there physically. Um, and he even says, yeah, you know, he's like, yeah, I've, you know, I've got the marks on my hands, my feet. See. Um, and it overcomes their unbelief because he still bears the punishments or the scars um, that our iniquities brought him. He's still in his glorified body. He still bears all the marks of uh, his suffering. Um, and he even eats and drinks. Um, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them after he asked them for something to eat. So he proves that he has a physical body because you know, ghosts don't really eat, right? Um, and so he proves to them that he's not a ghost and he says... Uh, <clears throat> These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to the understanding of the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that, the, that Christ should suffer on the third, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here Jesus is telling them, like, hey guys, um, all the, uh, my, my suffering and my resurrection are for all the nations, and they fulfill God's purpose in the Old Testament. Um, excuse me. And uh, he calls them to be his witnesses, you know, telling people, you know, use Jerusalem, starting with Jerusalem, tell the whole world about what's going on here, about the gospel, about my suffering and death for our sins. Go and tell the world. And he opens their minds, it says he opens their minds to the understanding of the scriptures. And uh, he, in a sense, he removes their spiritual blindness and allows them to uh, exposit the scriptures to others that the same way that he had exposited it to them. Uh, and also, uh, verse 48, it says, uh, or sorry, 49, it says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Um, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be given to us and uh, to the disciples um, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, verse 50, and here's where we're getting into the ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Um, yeah, carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Um, Jesus describes his uh, ascension into heaven and departure from this earth uh, as better for us than his abiding presence. And when he first announced his departure to the disciples, they were saddened, right? Um, they're like, if he announced his departure and his death at uh, the Last Supper. And they're all mourning over this. Like, why do you got to leave us? You know, this is, we're having a great time. Um, and it says here, as, and as the, uh, sorry, hold on. Um, <clears throat> In Acts 1, 9 through 11, um, when he had said these things, they were looking down, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up, uh, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Um, so, sorry. <coughs> It's kind of a conclusion to Jesus' ministry. Like, all right, um, it's, it's kind of also a reference to like Acts 1 and 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, where it says, all, the, uh, all these that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Um, so it's kind of a, like, all right, guys, here's what happened. 
Now, go forth and preach the gospel. Go forth and you know, do what I've commanded you to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Does anybody have any like discussion questions, or does anybody have anything that they brought out while they were reading this uh, this part, the Ascension? Did anything strike anybody as interesting um, in this section? I, I think it's just interesting at the end where he says that they worshipped him. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, thinking that Luke is writing this to Theophilus, mm-hmm. you know, and who Christ is, mm-hmm. and you know, just showing the proper place that he is to have in our lives. He is, he is our Savior. He's the one who's delivered us. Like you said, it mm-hmm. talks about our salvation, but then just our response to worship him as a result mm-hmm. of that. You know, wraps it up very well. Definitely. Um, I think it's kind of a picture too that Jesus is, you know, after he's uh, after he's risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven. Um, the, you know, the, the disciples worship him, you know, which is commanded of us to do to God. Um, and it's kind of a it's kind of a picture that everyone on earth, or and you know, everyone in heaven too, is technically called to uh, to reverence God's majesty, to be humbled by him, to bow the knee to him, and you know, reverence him as God. So that's awesome. Um, Clock. Wow. Okay. We've got a few minutes. Um, <coughs> I'm going to close this in prayer and uh, we can get ready to worship God uh, on the Lord's Day even more. Uh, Lord God, I want to thank you for this day. Um, I want to thank you for allowing us to uh, finish this wonderful book of your gospel, Lord God. Um, the, the wonderful sacrifice of Christ that you've given us, Lord God, that, uh, that uh, the second person of the Trinity, your Son, would... Uh, come down, be incarnated in human flesh, and uh, really, you know, from the foundation of the world, you would deem to uh, come down and rescue us sinners, Lord God. Um, uh, it's a wonderful thing, Lord, and uh, thank you for uh, just allowing me to expose your word, and I ask that you